Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Today on Backstory, we're going west. Yes, the Westgate Bridge looms large over today's show. 2018 West Writers Festival Forum, or West Writers Forum curator, I should say, Khaled uh, Wasame will join me later in the hour to talk about the event, uh, which will be running this weekend at Footscray Community Arts Centre. It features workshops, live performances and film screenings with talent like author Maria Tumarkin, who you may have heard a couple of weeks ago on this very show, Benjamin Law, Tony Birch, and bringing the Brooklyn block party vibe, DJ Jive Poetic. Uh, But next, Enza Gandolfo will be here to discuss The Bridge, a book that never actually crosses the Westgate, yet every character's lives are crossed by it. And two devastating events, chiefly Australia's worst industrial accident, the 1970 Westgate Bridge collapse that killed some 35 workers and injured hundreds of others. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. In 1970, the Westgate Bridge collapsed, killing 35 people and injuring hundreds of others. It was Australia's worst industrial accident. This event is a defining moment for the characters in Enza Gandolfo's novel, The Bridge, uh, which shows how the collapse of an 120-metre span of bridge could define lives for 40 years onwards. Um, Enza is uh, joining us today on Backstory. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. My name is Mel Cranenberg. Um, Enza, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about uh, this quite amazing book and where it came from. Um, the, well, so the bridge has two narrative strands and one of them, um, the main protagonist is Antonello who was 22 years old in 1970. He was a rigger um, and an Italian migrant and a rigger and he worked on the Westgate Bridge uh, when it collapsed and two of his um, closest friends died um, and 35 men, um, his workmates, died in that accident. And then the second strand is set in 2009 and it's about a young woman who has a car accident and her best friend is killed in in the accident. Um, And I, you know, the... I guess what I wanted to explore in this in this novel is about the aftermath of, of trauma and tragedy and how people uh, deal with those consequences in their lives. I think um, for me it was also about guilt and culpability and the fact that we all make mistakes, we're all negligent sometimes and things happen to good people and... How do you deal with those things, especially when they have such devastating consequences? Absolutely. And there was, you know, there's a component to this book and, you know, all of those themes that you've just touched upon are really rich within it. And, you know, I guess it's a it's a cliche to say that, of course, the Westgate Bridge is, is you know, one of the dominant characters in this book uh, in so many ways, defined by the people um, who were affected by it and who live in the shadow of it. 
I'm sure it's absolutely no accident that the characters don't ever cross the bridge. <laughs> it is a very apt metaphor. Perhaps one of them may actually cross the bridge, both metaphorically and literally at the end, mm. um, which is a, a wonderful kind of healing metaphor as well. But but it's very much a book about relationships as well and, and how people deal with things and how the things that they do or don't deal with affect others. Can you talk a little bit about this? Um, the primary relationship that we start with is Paulina and Antonello. This is, you know, quite a beautiful sort of hopeful love story at the beginning, very quickly devastated by mm. the effects uh, of the uh, the disaster of the Westgate Bridge. Talk to me a little bit about that because I really felt like this was one of those moments when you saw, uh, you know, what happens when people don't deal with their trauma. Um, look, when I was doing, I did quite a lot of research, even though I remember the collapse of the Westgate Bridge, I was 13 and, you know, I paid a certain amount of attention to it. I worked in a working class area, so it had a, an impact on me from that aspect. I did a lot of research and I read a lot of the stories about the men who had died. And, um, and of course, a lot of them were young men. A couple of them were about to be engaged. A couple of them, some of them had young families. So I really wanted to you know, Antonello, who's a fic- completely a fictional character, but I really wanted to explore the impact of the trauma, not just on him, but on his relationship with his wife. So at the beginning of the novel, he's, you know, he's completely in love and besotted by Paulina. He can't actually believe that she's agreed to, to marry him. She's a primary school teacher and he's a, a rigger, you know, and they're in love and they're just starting their lives and they have this wonderful romantic idea about what their life is going to be. Um, he is the youngest of five children and he's quite open. Um, he's quite a loving sort of brother and son. And then suddenly this horrible thing happens and he closes up. And I think that often does happen to people after um, such a traumatic accident and such a traumatic experience and there was no um none of the men were given any counseling so there was nothing available um in those days for further survivors and you even have this wonderful kind of you know metaphor included which is that you know antonello injures his knee and never really gets it seen to so he forever walks with a limp after that which is a real you know i suppose physical manifestation mm. of what it is that he's not dealing with emotionally yeah well and i think you know i mean often as a writer you don't know how your character is going to develop and um so but i do know that some of the survivors it was a bit like that for them so that time kind of stopped and they weren't able to move on and some of them who are still living still have nightmares about the bridge and the collapse of the bridge Mm. Um, and so I really wanted to explore how that 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 comes entrenched in your body as well as in your spirit and your emotions. Yeah, there was a I think there was one scene where you had um, you know Antonello kind of thinking about I think he was told that he needed a knee reconstruction but was reluctant to do it because it meant letting go of you know Mm. of of this guilt I guess of of you know what happens if he gets it fixed why should he be able to do that or does that mean that the last kind of reminder that constant nagging pain that he needed I think in some way as a sort of walking Mm. memorial was gone it was a really it was quite a a moving and powerful I think metaphor for exactly what people do with 
they hold on to trauma. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of guilt when you've been part of something like that, that and other people have died and you don't know, you know, why was he... He was under the bridge. He could have easily um, died in that accident and he didn't. And good people, you know, people he loved and cared about did die mm. and there's no really rhyme or reason why he survived and other people died and he felt that he somehow needed to honour their deaths and be remember them and um, not have them forgotten. Mm. And I guess in a way for me that was part of the motivation for the whole part, that part of the novel, the idea that, you know, we sort of drive over the bridge and think some of us know that 35 people were killed but we don't think about those individual men and their lives and you know, what it meant for each of them and for the men who survived. Well, that, that is, you know, a monument to a quite painful moment for many, many people that, mm. um, you know, that maybe even live over that side of the bridge. The fact that, you know, Antonello in this context can't bring himself to drive over it, um, you know, will take great pains to go around it. Uh, it's a really, um, it's really quite a powerful monument that, you know, it makes mm. us think about, think about all sorts of things like, for example, uh, Indigenous Australians and, and their view of certain cultural icons within Australia, including the flag, um, mm. and how that is a powerful trigger and reminder. And also, of course, you make the parallel with war, with the Vietnam War. Paulina has a brother who's off at war. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of parallels between Antonello and maybe those um, who've come back from conflicts mm. um, in terms of both kind of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. and also those other things. One of the things in this book as well, because it spans uh, 40 years, and we'll talk about you know, some of the other, there's yeah. a parallel storyline that goes on in the modern era. Um, but you get to see the effect, the generational effect of this mm. trauma or of not dealing with this trauma that you saw Antonello, you very beautifully kind of create him as a young man, hopeful and, you know, cheerful and um, filled with optimism and determined not to be someone like his father who was prone to bouts of anger and sounds like he himself was dealing with some, you know, suppressed yeah. trauma perhaps. Um, and then you watch how his children respond to him and the fact that he's gone through these periods where he just basically becomes robotic or um, checks out mm. um, of his children's lives and the fact that he really, you know, that that trauma has now had an effect on how his relationship with his family and with his wife. Yeah. Uh, it's really it's really great. Yeah, I think when I think that's what happens with trauma that we sort of think people have got over it because they're living their lives and you know he went and got a job and looked after his family and he had children and his life on the outside looks normal but really he's repressed all these feelings and of course that's most obvious in within the family where the children really feel him withdrawing and uh, they really feel his inability to express himself and his love that he obviously has for them, but that he's terrified in a way of expressing and getting close, um, as close as he was to those mates who died. Mm. Um, and so I think that is one of the um, legacies of that kind of trauma, especially when people aren't given any support at all along the way to sort of recover. 
Absolutely. If you just joined us, uh, you're listening to Three Triple R's Backstory, a show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to one of those people, Enza uh, Gandolfo. She's the author of The Bridge, uh, a wonderful story set in Melbourne's own western suburbs um, beneath the very looming presence in this instance of the Westgate Bridge. And it's full dark and rich history. I mean, the Australia's biggest industrial accident happened in 1970 there with 35 people being killed, several others injured. Um, among them, uh, the fictionalised characters of this book, um, including Antonello, who um, is one of the central characters. But I do want to skip on to... Um, Another kind of very important section of the book, which is a parallel story um, that, that kicks off in 2009, which is, you know, some kind of, you know, more than sort of 30 years on, nearly 40 years on from the um, the industrial accident. And, you know, we, we meet Jo, who um, is in year 12. She's sort of about to, you know, start her life. And she is really riddled with anxiety about her relationship with her best friend, Ashley. It's a really, um, I, I found this an incredibly moving relationship because quite often, you know, especially when you're writing about teenage love, it's very often centralised around a romantic awakening. But this is one of those truly important relationships, which is, you know, relationship between friends, the intensity of those kind mm. of um, teenage or um, childhood friendships uh, that especially between young women um, that I think you captured perfectly. Uh, jo really is, you know, Ashley has a hopeful future. She wants to become a lawyer. She's an A student. Jo has, you know, has come from a kind of you know, background of being bullied. Ashley was really the person that helped pull her out of that sort of mindset. But now she really feels like uh, her best friend is slipping away. Talk to me about this storyline a little bit. Yeah, one of the things I was, I mean, I'm really interested in friendships between women. I think they're often represented as in uh, fairly sort of one-dimensional ways and um, either they're rivals for a boy or um, they're sort of that bitch factor. Or And I think they're really complicated and I think for most women, certainly for me, female friendships uh, are the sustenance of my life. Like, you know, I have a partner who I love and and who's central, but I really need those female friendships and I've had them all my life and I'm very grateful for them. But often they are very complicated and often, um, and in this case, really I wanted to explore that whole idea of what we make up about what our friends think about us and how we read cues and how we misread cues. And especially at that young age where you're vulnerable and um, you're not sure what you want to do with your life and you really love this person, but you sort of feel that they're slipping away. And I think that often happens at that age because, you know, girls start to get into relationships. They start to think, you know, start to leave school. So there's other things coming into their lives. And so that's complicated. Now, we never, in the novel, I never have Ashley's point of view. So we don't really know what Ashley thinks about Joe. What we know is that Joe feels that Ashley is slipping away from her and she's really 
um, scared about that. It's a really interesting because she's, you know, quite a kind of unreliable narrator in a sense, yeah, Jo. She um, she's looking at Ashley through the locus of her own sort of anxiety. She kind of breaks into her friend's diary and finds, you know, that her friend is, is really totally focused on her new relationship with a boyfriend, which is hardly surprising, I suppose, um, you know, when... You know, mm. that kind of obsessive love often happens in teenage years. Um, and I think it's a really, it's one of those really incredibly sad moments when you're looking at it from an adult perspective and, and thinking to yourself, you're not really seeing things clearly, <laughs> Joe. It's deeply saddening. It did make me think a little bit about the Eleanor Ferrante novels, mm. um, the Neapolitan novels, more for the richness of that kind of description and the, the kind of solid perspective um, from one character looking at, at a friend um, that is both idolised, loved, yeah. and also, um, you know, the object of some sort of jealousy, I yeah. guess, as well, and, and, you know, a sense of inadequacy. Um, I think that that's also done really beautifully there. Thank you. Thank you. I love Elena Ferrante and I love those novels. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great compliment. Yeah. Um, look, I, I also, there's, you know, um, a great kind of uh, loss that happens for Jo yeah. as well. One, she also feels deeply guilty about, um, which is something that, you know, again, it's wound around the Westgate yeah. Bridge. I don't want to give away too much here because a lot of these kind of narrative threads are things that you will unravel <laughs> as you go through the book. Um, but her story actually really has a narrative arc that I found desperately heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, it's one where, you know, I guess you can imagine what goes on beyond the page. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about um you know, why Joe's kind of um, narrative went the way it did and, you know, who she is in the novel for you. Look, I was... The inspiration for Joe's narrative really came from a very... I mean, look, there are a number of um, accidents that happen where young people are driving and often the driver is the one who survives in, you know, it seemed to be... You know, at that time while I was thinking about those issues, it seemed to be a not uncommon occurrence. And there was a particular young woman who had an accident that left a huge impression on me. She was 26. She was described in the media as being quiet and hardworking and hardly ever went out. And she went out one night. She got drunk with a friend, ran into some other friends. They all... She talked them into getting into the car. She said she was OK to drive. And two of them died and um, the other two were injured and then she ended up in jail for about six years. And the judge talked about how there were no real criminals. There wasn't in the courtroom. She was, it was, you know, the result of risky and immature behaviour. And I remember reading about that and talking about it with friends and and. You know, we were much older and people are saying, how could she have done that? How responsible? And I thought, we did that. We did that in our 20s, you know, like we all did irresponsible things and it's only when I was 20 no one even blinked an eye at the fact that you would drive home after a night of drinking, you know, people just did. Uh, and I thought, you know, of course it's bad and wrong and, and all of those things but she's just an ordinary young woman who made a really bad mistake. But what are the consequences of that and how it will impact on her life? And in some ways it's sort of interesting because you've set up these two characters, uh, Joe and Antonello, and both of them in a lot of ways, their reaction to trauma is not dissimilar. They both blame themselves. They feel guilt. Mm. Uh, society is more likely to blame Joe for the thing that happens with her, um, which I'm sure people can guess, but you have to read the book. <laughs> um, 
you know, but, uh, you know, both of them are kind of dealing with this in a way. Um, Antonello, on the one hand, uh, though, uh, society would never blame him, even though he feels like he was a part mm. of the big tragedy and there, there were things he could have done, he thought. Yeah. Um, whether or not that's true is a whole other story. Whether he had the power in that situation is doubtful. Um, but on the flip side of that as well, um, you can think about, you know, there's a lot of brain science now about young people under the age of 25 and the fact that, you know, um, actually they don't have the same um, impulse control um, or executive function. Yeah. Um, there are There is every suggestion that actually the culpability isn't there as much um, and that, you know, as as it was kind of pointed out at certain parts of the book, a lot of people um, could be deemed responsible for what happened. You sort of get that in a way, though, um, having a mechanism of blame um, in that situation where you feel like you can you know, I suppose serve your time if you like or have something that means that you can be redeemed might be something that Antonello missed out on. Um, not getting any kind of counselling and not getting the kind of punishment he felt was his due meant that there was no rite of passage, I guess, to mm. get through that. Um, I guess so. And I was also, I think, thinking about the way we deal with culpability in, like, I don't, I mean, obviously, Antonella has survivor guilt and really it wasn't his fault. And the Royal Commission report was very clear that it was the fault of the companies involved. But of course, no one went to jail. No one was, you know, punished in that way. And so whereas with an individual who has a, an accident the way, you know, the, the kind of accident Joe has, we have an expectation that they will be punished and they will go to jail and, and, and we hope that in that some way that is redemptive, but of course not necessarily. Some of the men I think found going to work on the bridge um, redemptive. So finishing the bridge was something that um, was kind of worked in that way for them. But some of the men, like Antonello, could not face even stepping onto the site, mm. let alone uh, working on the bridge. So it, it, there was no way of him resolving those issues and, and no one to help him no, resolve those issues necessarily stating it you know there is a real kind of class issue there as well where you know you have you know the burden of the pain falling on these these people who are just individuals mm. um you know versus the big culpable corporations that get off scot-free yeah. you sort of really do you know yeah. cut that into sharp relief that actually you know especially with joe i guess she's taking the full weight of the law yeah. um, as a, a small individual person that, you know, yeah. you can, you know, is greatly, I suppose, remorseful versus these companies that carry on. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I was really interested in that whole issue, how difficult it is. Like, in a way, as a society, we do need to punish those sorts of, that sort of behaviour. and But yet at the same time, it could be any of us mm. and it could happen to anyone and it happens to good people all the time because none of us are perfect and we make mistakes and um, and so I really wanted to explore that and, and the way that that we then judge people who have made those mistakes as well. And I guess also the fact that none of us know how we're going to behave in a when something like that happens and I was really interested in that as well you know Joe's mother doesn't behave the way that 
you might expect a mother to behave in that situation. No, and actually um, we are running out of time, mm. um, but but there is other, you know, richness in this book, uh, very much so, and and among that is uh, the relationship between Joe and, and her mother, um, which is a really kind of quite sad relationship in a lot of ways because her mother is a deeply flawed character but she's very very human Mm. and I had a lot of empathy for her as um you know in her attempt to parent a difficult child and and herself being you know difficult as a person um I just saw that that was a really honest kind of rendition of a relationship Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Mandy and Joe love each other, but often it isn't easy to express love in those situations where you're caught off guard and you're angry and grieving and um, you don't know how to behave really. And I really wanted to explore the complexity of that mother-daughter relationship, especially when it's thrown in, in such a situation where they don't they can't think and they can't there's no clarity there's just all these feelings that yeah, and how a woman is expected to to behave is not necessarily how mandy behaves yeah. she's she's not someone that articulates her feelings well or she doesn't say things and she you know openly kind of discusses that her resentment that of her daughter yeah uh, it's a really it's fantastic actually that um that rendering uh, Enza, you. I would love to continue to talk to you about this <laughs> thank you um you do what a lot of great novels do you pose a lot of questions and you don't offer easy answers um you do sort of show the wealth of kind of human experience and the fact that you know there is no one way that people react to quite complicated situations I love that you've done this uh in this incredibly um, Melbourne setting under the Westgate Bridge and I hope that it kind of brings people to sort of the West um, as, you know, as an incredible rich literary setting, um, which it clearly deserves to be. Thank you so much. Enza. Thank you, Mel. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've been listening to the wonderful Enza Gandolfo talking about her novel, The Bridge. Uh, the show is Backstory. You're listening to 3 R. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You're on 3 R and the show is Backstory. Um, and we were talking um, before about uh, the Westgate Bridge and the western suburbs. And uh, even if that scared you a little about the structural integrity of the Westgate Bridge, um, which I can't speak for, to be completely honest, but uh, I'm sure after that 1970 disaster, a lot of people were terrified. Um, But it is definitely worth crossing the Westgate Bridge this weekend. There's a lot of good stuff happening over at the Footscray Community Arts Centre as part of the 2018 West Writers Forum. Uh, Benjamin Law, Maria Tamark and Tony Burt, Raina Peterson uh, and Leah Ling DJ Jive Poetic Workshops, Poetry Slams, so much else. I'm joined by curator uh, Khalid Wasami, who joins us to tell us more about this incredible event. Uh, Khalid, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really, you know, always amazed um, with the wealth of literary talent uh, that we have uh, in Melbourne. But this festival, or this, I should say, forum, looks extraordinary. It's actually a really wonderful curation of people who actually live in the West, which, you know, quite often I think we have festivals that are, or events or writers, um, you know, happenings that are set in areas but don't actually reflect the areas. This one really definitely feels like it does. 
but you do have some carefully selected uh, guests from out of town, including as far afield as Brooklyn um, with DJ Jive Poetic. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about this forum and, and what the kind of main focus is, some of the guests that you're really excited about. So the forum is... Um it's a showcase for it's the um, main performance outcome and showcase for our um, West Riders group, which is a, a group of writers who have links um, to the western suburbs of Melbourne, who um, w- are part of the Footstray Community Arts Centre's um, West Riders program. And so we, meet, I'm the facilitator for the West Riders group, and we have a tremendously talented group of writers um, of you know diverse backgrounds and 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 and, and storytelling traditions, and we. We meet every year. We meet. We meet every, um, once a fortnight, and we workshop each other's work as the writers, and we do performance outcomes and events and things like that. And the West Writers Forum is is the main showcase of the year for that. So the program is um, is is it's it's both a it's a we call it a forum because it's not quite as large as it's not quite a sprawling festival. It's more of a very tightly focused. Um, curated group of events which are designed to showcase the literary talents of the West as well as in um, showcasing, you know, talents from further afield. So this year's headliner is Jive Poetic, who's a um, poet, um, performer, DJ, activist from Brooklyn. And um, so he's down this year as part of the Melbourne NYC program that that is, you know, you might have seen the ads for that all over town. Um, so we've got our main, our main event on the Saturday night is the... Um, one night stanza, which is our, which is a hugely popular um, night of poetry and music, and 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 it's it's really fun. So the forum goes over three days. On the Friday, we have the program launch, which is uh, just an occasion. There's a few performances, a few you know conversations that are being had, and there's some, some music, and we've got um, two amazing um, musicians, Kai and Kalala, playing that night. And on this Saturday, we have uh, workshops, panels, um, performances, and events. And on the Sunday, we have Really, uh, 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 we have a film and screen day, which is curated by the filmmaker and journalist Antilla Chingape, and it's uh, it's a group of it's a group of events which are really mentorship and workshop opportunities for emerging filmmakers from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and that's available. That's open to people who um, Im- identify as you know coming from marginalized backgrounds who are also emerging filmmakers a way for them to get their foot into an industry that is that often is predicated on exclusion or or some sort of you know um it can be harder to access for people who who don't have the resources and we designed this program with the centilla um curated this program and we've got um filmmakers from and directors and and screenwriters and also representatives from screen australia and film victoria so they'll lead a day of workshops and activities for um filmmakers I really love that this is so heavily focused on skills-based stuff as well and that knowledge sharing, uh, which is fantastic. And there is a, you know, there's a lot mixed in here um, about people from bilingual backgrounds or, you know, bring that into the, the writer's scape, I guess, because there is, you know, we're still having a heavy preponderance of, you know, English language um, literature really pushed upon people, but you don't often get to sort of see this interplay as much. Can you talk a little Absolutely. bit about that? One of the founding um, ideas behind the West Riders Group and the West Riders Program at Footstray is that, at uh, Footstray Community Arts Centre, is, is this idea that there, we, we there are so many different communities speaking so many different languages coming from so many different rich traditions and backgrounds and there's there's really a lot of the time 
privileging either the page or the English language isn't isn't the best way to showcase the the, the diversity and richness of the of of the experiences of the people who um, engage with the literature and the idea of the West Writers Forum and the group and and the the work that we do is to really find it's a it's an idea of storytelling instead of a, a literary sensibility we. We all share stories and we have stories to tell and our, our stories are part of our identities and a part of our communities. And sometimes they don't come out in ways that fit the mold, which is, you know, that, 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 mold, that mold of a university educated English language literary sensibility. And the West Riders Forum, um, is designed to showcase those talents and that are, that transcend, you know, any specific, um, background or language or, 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 or sphere of activity. And so we've got one event, which I'm really excited about, which is, um, um, curated by one of our West writers, Nadia, Nadia Niaz. And it's, um, it's multi, it's, a, it's an exploration and celebration of multi- multilingual writing and what that means and using, um, I think you've seen sometimes you'll be reading a novel and there'll be bits and pieces in languages other than English. And that, that really highlights the richness of, 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 you know, of, we we talked about diversity of lot a lot, but when we when we think about what it actually means, it's it means, you know, um, it's a, this a fragment. It's fragmentation and it's celebration of differences and 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 yeah, and that's what really what the West Riders Forum is. Yeah, look, it's really. I, I think a lot about this in terms of access as well. Like when we we call ourselves a multicultural society, and, and you know the very definition of that is that it's multitudes, um, people from everywhere, different language backgrounds, um, who are supposed to live happily coexisting culturally together without having, you know, a prevailing dominant culture being the culture. Um, it's very rare, though, that we get to see that in action. Um, and, and this festival really is kind of foregrounding that. I do want to talk more specifically about uh, some of the other people who are involved in this and their perspectives. Uh, but if you've just joined us and you're wondering what we're talking about, uh, this is a backstory. You're listening to 3RRR. Um, I'm Mel Cradenberg and I'm joined by Khaled Wasami, who is the curator of uh, the 2018 um, West Writers Forum and it's a really extraordinary set of events um, that are happening this weekend. Um, I was intrigued by Raina Peterson as well um, who is billed as a classical Indian dance and queer performance artist. Can you talk a little bit about her? Um, so Raina's event is part of um, the Jed Press showcase and Jed Press is a um, online literary publication run by um, the editor and writer Hella Ibrahim and we, it's designed as, and, and we're showcasing the talents of the writers who've been contributing to that um, publication over the past year or so and Hella really brought out, um, there's an amazing amazingly talented group of writers and, and, and performers and who are um, performing in that event and Raina's one of them and Raina's been long associated with for Straight Community Arts Centre through um, we had events of theirs a few um, a year or two ago and I, I happened to catch um, um, their, their show at, at, at the at the, at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute and it was it was just fascinating it was just so exciting to see and I'm really looking forward to their performance on the um, Saturday 
Yeah, that's really great. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of uh, people that are kind of listed here, including Marita Markin and Benjamin Law, etc., will be familiar to people. Marita Markin is a particularly interesting uh, writer, and I think she really demands a lot of readers in terms of actually, you know, her work, Axiomatic, that's recently come out, is, is really extraordinary. But I think she's also uh, involved in discussing this notion of, um, you know, not writing in your mother tongue necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of comes out of that? Because I think that, you know, this notion of losing something in translation, um, flipping on it on its head and gaining something in translation, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Marie is a fascinating writer. I've, I've long admired her work and um, her, her her mother tongue, um, for those of you who don't know, is, is, is Russian. And um, she writes in English and she's had work translated um, in, into English. And there's also, there's this sensibility that crosses once you cross that language barrier the conversations that you're having will be colored by the idea by the um, um, by by the by the actual impulse behind the language and I think it's not to get too um, um, you know into linguistic theory here but it's a re- it's really fascinating to read work by a writer who's very consciously writing in a mode other than their mother tongue and I identify that with that myself because you know English is my um, second or third language and I um, it's not what I'd say is my mother tongue but it's a language that I move through the world in especially living here in Australia and part of the reason why I was interested in hearing Maria speak about this is because I've heard her talked about it very briefly before and Every, I think I, I saw her at an event at the Wheeler Centre a, um, a few months ago where she spoke about that very briefly and it just, alarm bells started ringing in my head. I was like, I want to hear you talk about that some more. <laughs> I want to hear you talk about the complexities of changing languages mm. and what is lost and what is gained when you switch from your mother tongue to your adopted tongue and the way she, especially with her practice, which is heavily you know, based on research and, and investment into uh, people and um, a lot of, a lot of uh, considerable integrity around the process of um, um, writing her book Axiomatic as well as her other books and um, it's just a fascinating um, sphere of inquiry a discussion that I'm really excited to um, hear more of I want to I'm I want to hear it. I don't. I've, I've just started listening to these conversations. I've just started. These are things that I've mm. really started thinking about in the past year. And as an audience member, as someone who, well, I did create the event, but as I'm more excited to witness it as an audience member because it's really going to shape my perceptions and my and my thoughts regarding this. That's great. I did notice that um, that there was something on the bill where that you've got a number of authors coming in and talking about the books that shaped them. Mm. I'll be very interested to see that as well because I think quite often, you know, we got the white male literary canon shoved at us um, you know at certain stages of our development so that when you do cut through and find someone who more exactly sort of reflects you or an aspect of yourself it can be absolutely world shifting. Do you have an author like that that did that for you? Well uh, this is the event Writers on Writers where um, a group of writers um, talk about the works that have influenced and shaped them. I think for me I this is something that I talk about a lot because I've got a writing practice and amongst um, my friends who are writers, we often talk about books that have shaped us and these are the most fascinating conversations that you can have as an artist is thinking, is, is asking someone else what what make, what make are their building blocks? Where, where, what are the individual pieces in there, you know, um, um, that, make, that shape them? And for me, I always return to the books that I grew up with and um, my dad grew up in, um, spent his 20s in, in Russia and he picked 
picked up a love of Russian literature. So throughout my childhood, the only books that we had at home were Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and so on. And those <laughs> are the books. That, those are the books. Yeah, I'm, I think it's, it suits the sensibility of of <laughs> my upbringing very closely. But those are the books that I, the first books that I was reading cover to cover as a child. And and when I look back on that, I think everything that's come after has come from that. And it's not just it's not just the I the books themselves. It's more the way they they provide a lens. Every every art is a lens of which you view the world, and the, it it's it's everything builds on everything else. And mm. you can sort of trace your it's all, almost like tracing your ancestors back in time and seeing where your ideas are coming from and seeing you being engaged in this it's built upon this idea that you were first um, introduced to as a child which which shape you in so many weird and wonderful ways and I'm just fascinated to hear what other people's versions of that would be absolutely I remember the author Eva Hornung I once interviewed her and uh, we were talking about a weird cultural ricochet you sometimes have um, where a book it's not necessarily even you know the cultural setting of the book or who it was written by but an aspect of it that sends you kind of you know pinballing around to different places I'm hoping to hear conversations like this this weekend um, we're nearly out of time uh, Khalid but I'd love you to sort of touch on how people can pick up tickets or get along to the so the, the West, the West Riders forum. forum is on the 27th to the 29th of um, um, July that's um, just a weekend away and you can find tickets at the Footstray Arts website if you go on www.footstrayarts.com you'll be able to pick up tickets it's very um, um, reasonably priced and there's a it's just it's just a packed program um, the Friday is the main opening night event and the Saturday we have just so many just from dawn till dusk there's like from in the morning to the evening there'll be events on and um, yeah I do encourage you to check out the website um, buy tickets and I'll see hopefully say hello to me at the forum and I'll um, <laughs> I'll be there. And I did notice, I think the DJ Jive Poetic um, Workshop might be sold out, but I believe there's a performance. Um, there's a performance on the Saturday night, the one night stanza, and that one's um, that one's very close to selling out as well. So I do encourage that you pick up tickets. It's a free event, the main Saturday night performance, um, and it's just going to be an amazing night. And there's some incredible local performance that you should mm. definitely, definitely get along to see. Um, thank you so much, Khalid, for coming in and chatting with us about this. Uh, I'm looking forward to this weekend. Um, and thank you so much for coming on Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Three. Triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.